Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. We've gotten a lot of really great supportive feedback from the listeners to this podcast, and we're really grateful for you sharing the show with your friends. We really appreciate the time you spent rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps to keep us going and doing everything we can to keep improving the show. There have been some negative reactions for our willingness not only to discuss but embrace the subject of politics and social issues in horror films. But you know what? I'm certainly not going to apologize for having adults in the world of horror talking about ideas. Good art, good movies, good books have always been about more than just the surface. And in horror, more than just the boo. They have ideas, and the ideas look into the dark recesses of who we are. They search for common and uncommon fears. One of the reasons I'm so drawn to the genre is that it is bold, that it breaks taboos. It seeks what is beneath the surface. Confronting fears in a safe place might be a simple rationalization, but for some it's important. I love a simple scary story as much as anyone, and I've delighted in wet, splattery scenes in movies just for the sheer audaciousness of them. The intent to offend, raising the middle finger to the standard world order. But the ones that stick with me are the stories, stories about ideas with rich and complex characters that I can identify with, whether we have anything in common or not. I love movies and books that make me think, that take me places I might not have imagined on my own, but made real by a dark imagination that gives it veracity. I want to feel that this is a story that lived before the opening titles and continues after the end credits. The whole point of this podcast is to find out what makes the creators of these dark fantasies tick. What are their fears and how can they connect to us in such a personal way? How do they use their tools to get under our skin with a story that we can take home long after we've left the theater? John Carpenter once told me that it's easy to make people jump. He could just run some black leader through a projector, put in a white frame and a loud noise and make you jump. That's the easy mechanical part. The hard part is taking you to a place that you recognize, get into your guts and keep in the back of your head. The things that make you uneasy in the real world outside the theater. Neil Marshall is one of those film artists. He's worked in film and television and quickly became a master of creating scenes that live in your head long after the movies are over. His is a unique career and a great story on its own. This is Postmortem with Mick Garris. All right, Neil Marshall, I know you're not really fully a horror guy. I think, is your first love more action movies? Yeah, I'd say so. Um, you, know, the, uh, actually, you know, I often say the story that, you know, the movie that made me want to make movies is Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, but that has some pretty good horror elements in it as well, you know, melting faces and, you know, people getting skewered and all that kind of stuff. So I guess, you know, that's a movie that combines elements of everything that I love. Um, and that kind of got me into the idea of making movies. Um, and then I, 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 it was later that I kind of really started to get into horror. Right. And, and what was the appeal to that to you? I think initially it was the way that an audience reacts to it. Mm -hmm. And then as a filmmaker, 
just having any kind of physical or audible reaction from an audience is very rewarding. Um, so what about comedy? Well, I, I like making people jump rather than making people laugh. But then, <laughs> you know, make people squirm or, or run screaming out of the theater is, uh, you know, is one way of doing it. Um, comedy, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I try and put some laughs in my movies somewhere, mm. but I don't consider myself a comedy guy, no. Well, how did how did it begin for you? I know to want to make movies came from Raiders of the Lost Ark, but were you a movie fan before that? Was it a passion of yours? Yeah, I think, you know, I definitely got it from my parents. Um, you know, they like watching movies. My dad's a big Westerns fan and big John Wayne fan. Um, but also he loved, um, uh, he liked horror as well. So as I remember one of my earliest memories of movies is him kind of waking me up when I was like, I don't know, five or six or something and saying, you've got to come through and watch something on the TV. And it was, uh, The Bride of Frankenstein. Oh, wow. And, um, I just remember like just sitting there kind of, in awe and terror and wonder at this thing. And clearly that's like stuck in my head. And I, you know, I was interested in those old, you know, the, you know, the, the classics, the universal classics, the monsters, uh, from that age. And then they started taking me to the cinema and like, you know, the, the, some of the earliest movies I saw were like Star Wars and, you know, the Spy Who Loved Me and. Well, there's a very special like thing that. about the date of Star Wars release. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's my birthday. Exactly. Well, it's my, it was my seventh birthday. Right. So yeah. did you see it when you were seven? Uh, I think I actually saw it later on in its release. As I recall, for some reason, it was my, I think it was like, it was like my sister's birthday treat to go out and see it. Wow. Um, as I recall, I could be remembering this completely wrong. So I guess it wasn't like when it first came out. But then again, I, in the UK, I don't know if it came oh, out it on the same day. So, yeah. so I remember going to see that. And that just obviously, I fell in love with going to the movies you know at that, on that day just the impact of that movie on a seven-year-old or eight-year-old or whatever it was at the time yeah, yeah. um really kind of locked in at that point and 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 from then on i was addicted to going to the movies yeah. and then it was like later on when i saw raiders but more specifically when i saw the making of raiders on tv really and seeing for the first time uh you know how a movie was made and what you know what 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 that whole process was and then basically just deciding then and there was like, okay, I need to do this and I need to, I want to direct movies. I didn't really know what directing movies meant at that point. But, um, and then, then it was hooked. And then, and then of course that was like the, the, the beginning of the VHS, mm. uh, you know, a period of time. Um, and so suddenly lots more things were accessible and most of that was horror. And you spent most of your life in the UK. It's only been the last several years you've been living in the US. What was your diet of films? Did you find them mostly to be American action and horror movies? Yeah, pretty much. We, you know, we had a we had a pretty good video shop. We had Revolver Video was our was our mm -hmm. local place, and that and you know the shelves were stocked with uh, horror and porn, and <laughs> you know, but it was all American content. You know, right. it was, it's all stuff like that. So, do you feel then, that brought you a different perspective to to filmmaking from another country it, the cultures are not vastly different but to be watching films that were mostly produced in the u.s was that something that influenced a very muscular filmmaking style that you have definitely those are the films i emulated you know when you become uh, when i became more aware of british cinema and it was very much the, yeah that especially at that time you know kitchen sink dramas and stuff like that was yes. like exactly what i didn't want to make you didn't want to make ken loach <laughs> movies right no, you know, and that's that's the thing. Is like at the time, it's like the Mike Lees and the Ken Loaches or whatever, who are still kind of going strong. But you know, that was their kind of heyday, and it was like I just was not interested in that kind of stuff. 
Well, we didn't have an experience that you did in the UK with video nasties. Tell me what that was like. Well, I started watching horror films on VHS and things like that because obviously I was too young to get into the cinema to watch them because because the because the system in the UK obviously uh, unlike in the states where like a, a parents can take a child to see a, a, a you know an R-rated film or whatever in the UK it's like there's uh, at that time I think it was A double A and X and double A was nobody under 15 I think it was and then X was nobody under 18 and that was a hard rule so without VHS like I would have had no access to watching horror movies until you know uh, 88. Wow. So, um, but they were ruled, uh, illegal. Well, yes. Yeah, so, so the beginning of the, the whole VHS, um, you know, a uh, period of time, the early days, I saw a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, and then it was like, I don't know, maybe two years later, uh, a lot of that suddenly got put on this band. It's, you know, th- uh, I can't remember how many films it is. It's like, it's quite a long list, like 60 odd films. And some of them, uh, some of them you kind of get it. Some of them you're like, what? <laughs> uh, and, it, and it was, it was panic. It was absolute panic on the part of you know, the British government and led by various voices along the way who just, you know, sent everything into a tailspin of like, we're all being corrupted and these horror films are corrupting us. And, and of course it was true. A hundred percent. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but that's, but that's always the thing is like, okay, so when I was, you know, 12, 13, I can't remember exactly how old it was, and, and a neighbor of mine said, come on around, I've got a couple of horror films to show you, and the first one was Zombie Flesh Eaters. Oh, my God. And the second one was I Spit on Your Grave. And you're how old? Uh, 13. Um, and you do, Welcome you, to puberty. Yeah, <laughs> and you do kind of wonder, it's like, well, I can say, well, in some respects I can say, well, it didn't affect me in an adverse way, and yet in the same respect it drove me to making horror films and stuff like that, so... Did it or didn't it? I don't know. It didn't affect me in an adverse way, but it definitely had an effect on me. So were you sort of a loner? So many people within the genre are. Or did you have a a social group who were also interested in the same things you were? I didn't have a group. I had like one mate um, who was just like me, just like completely obsessed with movies. Is this the guy who just made the movie that came out today? uh, No, this is – he was my best friend, Mike – uh, Mike Johnson, um, he's now a very successful screenwriter. He wrote Sherlock Holmes and Pompeii and a whole bunch of other stuff like that. So, um, you know, we're still, we're still friends and we're still in the business together, you know, ironically enough, uh, so many years later. But, um, so we kind of instantly connected, uh, our joint love of, of movies. And then, you know, we'd, we'd go and get Starlog and Fantastic Films and Starburst and all the magazines together. We discovered the, the the first kind of sci-fi comic shop that was in our town, and they'd go there every Saturday to root through the boxes and see what magazines and books and things we could find, uh, and then go to the movies all the time. And did you imagine yourself making movies at the age of thirteen? Uh, well, we kind of started right away after we saw Raiders. Um, we we borrowed his mum's uh, eight millimeter camera. And pretty much actual eight, super eight, or video eight, super <laughs> super eight, uh-huh. super eight. Um, and you know, t- t- the thing is now that that whole story is a bit of a sort of cliche because so many filmmakers tell the same story. But uh, but it's true. You know, we started making these really bad kind of Indiana Jones ripoffs, and then moved on to kind of more horror stuff with like aliens and things like that later on. But. Um, yeah, we just started making films and cutting films and putting music to them and, and learning the process very practically from the ground up, learning how not to do stuff as much as how to do stuff. Um, 
And then, you know, that led directly into me kind of going to film school later on. So, Well, let's jump around, not, not necessarily do it all in order, because I want to still get back to the Raiders of the Lost Ark thing and something that happened during your career where you were going to remake Troll Hunter for a while. Yes. And you came close to casting Harrison Ford. Well, amongst many, yeah, I mean, it was certainly like we sent the, the offer out and things like that. But uh, but you met sadly, with him, right? No, I didn't get to meet him. Oh, no, no, you that, didn't. Would, that would have been something different. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that, I, that could have been an amazing circle to start with. <laughs> oh, yeah. Raiders. Well, I mean, what I yeah. did manage to do was I worked with Belloc. You know, I had oh, uh, yeah. Paul Freeman in Centurion, so that was, uh, that was amazing. Um, but no, I didn't, I didn't get to meet Harrison, sadly. Well, what's the first short film or film that you put together where you really feel like this is a real movie this isn't kids playing with a mom's eight millimeter camera well i did um i did a number of things for sort of tv little short films for tv that were, were not very good uh, how did that happen how did that door open to do it professionally um following on from graduating from film school uh, I met a bunch of local filmmakers and there was at that time in, in my hometown of Newcastle, there was this kind of local TV industry. It's all gone now. It's all kind of been nationalized or whatever it is. And there were, and there were programs for local filmmakers to make, you know, half hour, half hour dramas and things like that. Hmm. So, um, and we, and we kind of got into that. I got into it kind of through editing as much as anything. Um, and wasn't able to direct at least one or two like 10 minute shorts. But I was also working with these other filmmakers in different capacities. I would edit for people or I would storyboard for people or I would uh, just be like a action coordinator for people on different projects. Um, and then this, this feature film came along in uh, 95, um, a thing called Killing Time, which I co-wrote with a couple of friends. And then somebody else directed, but I was this, I was like action coordinator and storyboard artist and editor and co-writer mm -hmm. on it. So I was there for the whole thing. And it was a great education. It was like a four-week shoot with no money. Nobody got paid. But like everything, pretty much everything that could go wrong went wrong at some point or another. And we learned the process from the ground up. It was probably more of an education than three years at film school. You know? Well, that's what I was going to ask. What do you feel the value of film school was? Of course, my experience, and I did not go to film school, but I've, I've spoken to them and the like, is that you can kind of do everything. Everybody's available all the time. You work on as many days as it takes and all. Yeah. In the real world, you have to get out of this location by three o'clock this afternoon. You've got to get this actor in and out within an hour and a half. All of those things. So tell me the difference between the education that you got formally and the education that you got in the real world. Um, I got, there was a lot of theory. It wasn't like the most ideal film course that I went to. And it where was, was this at? Uh, this is in Newcastle upon Tyne. It was the University of what's well, called the University of Northumbria. It was a different had a different name at the time, and the, the course is called media production. Um, so it's like a much more broad based kind of media thing, and there's aspects of photography and advertising and all this kind of stuff. Um, most of which I was not interested in, and a lot of film theory which I wasn't interested in at all. But there was a practical side to it, and they had the equipment. Uh, and that enabled us, that enabled me to get my hands on some film gear and a bunch of people who wanted to help out. So ultimately, the, how were your films shot? Were they shot on sixteen mil? You had the, you had the choice. Um, there was sixteen mil gear, but everybody wanted to use that. And you know the film, you had you know the film was expensive and things like that at the time. So um, 
when I chose, when I came to make my graduation movie, which was kind of like the whole purpose of the thing in the end, like I started out doing animation and I got really tired of doing that because it like took so, so long to do like a minute of film. I was like, ah. so do you draw and paint as well? Uh, it was more stop motion stuff. Mm. Um, and I did a very brief bit of animation of uh, an eyeball melting and running down somebody's face. And we screened it for the rest of the course, and there was like an audible reaction from the audience, and that was kind of like, boom, I like that. <laughs> I want more of that. Yeah. So uh, for my for my graduation film, pretty much the last year of the course, uh, I made a, a, a zombie movie, uh, I think called Brain Death, um, which was an action, comedy, zombie you know, bloodbath thing. And, and a couple of friends were interested in makeup effects. A couple of, you know, a friend was interested in miniature effects. So I, we drafted all these people in and made this 20 minute, you know, zombie action movie. It was like a little bit like the thing. It was a little bit like aliens. It like, it was like all sorts of things thrown in there, lots of references and zombies. And, uh, you know, this was at a time when nobody was really making zombie movies as well. I don't remember a time like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly not in the UK. That's for sure. Um, and so, uh, so we made this, and it was everybody else on the course was making, you know, very, very thoughtful, black and white, artistic, 16 mil things. And, uh, and I decided to shoot mine on like quarter inch video because I had access to the, the, the camera. It was like, well, if you use that, you can have it all the time. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, great. I'll just use that then. No. And it looked like shit, of course. <laughs> but... Quarter inch video. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, especially with all the red lighting I was using, it just kind of bled and looked horrendous. But, um, it played at the, we, every year they hire a cinema in, in town and they play all the student films and, and it played gangbusters. Like it just got a, you know, great response from the audience. I think a bit of light relief, really. It's not else. what you expect from a student film festival, right? No, it was, it was unexpected for that. And, and, you know, and it, and it kind of, the course itself, it kind of split the tutors. Like some people were like really supportive and some people were like very frowny, kind of, like, <laughs> why are you wasting your time with this nonsense kind of stuff? Um, frowny is a very good word. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there was a few frowns. Um, but at the screenings, as I say, some of these local directors and producers were there and they came to me afterwards and said, look, would you like to ed- come and edit for us? And, and it was like, and, and suddenly that made the entire three year course worthwhile. It was like, boom, that's led into some work. So the actual technical production education you got there led to your first real paying job in the film yeah. business. Yeah. So that, you know, I was editing to pay the rent really. Yeah. So and... did you think of yourself as an editor or you were working your way towards being a filmmaker? Um, I, I was always thinking of as as a as a way up. You know, it was something to do to pay the rent. It was an ed- it's a great way to kind of learn the process. I think editing is every director should have a go at editing just 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 to learn the process. Uh, to mainly to see what other directors do, to see you know what what's the right way to do it, the wrong way to do it. It's it's very enlightening. There's an infinity of choices, and it would be interesting to see different directors take the raw footage Absolutely. of uh, any movie and how they would cut it. See together. where they go, yeah. Because visions are so different, and, and it's such yeah. a it's such a part of the creative process. I mean, I I, I hate that the, the, you know some people consider edit, editors as button pushers, and like, that's so not true. And you just you know you're hurting yourself to consider it that way. Um, you know, I love now as much as I like editing myself, I do like the relationship with editors and what they bring to the table. It's fascinating. So, so I was doing that for like the next eight years while I was, um, also writing and trying to get whatever break I could to do some directing. And like I say, these kind of TV things came along and that was good. And then that feature came along and that was good. 
And then a couple of years later, uh, I managed to get the financing to do a little 10-minute film uh, called Combat. Aha, uh-huh. I know where this is going. <laughs> uh, and, and this was like, you know, it was just like a lot of friends that I'd worked with. Um, I, I don't know, I can't remember. I was walking back from the pub one night and just had this idea of like, well, you know, the things that go on in the pub, if you like to strip the sound away, and it, it's kind of like there's a war movie going on between, you know, men and women in pub on a Friday night. There's like, it's like a combat zone, people trying to pick each other up, people getting dumped, people, you know, just interaction of, of humans, basically. Interesting. Not what I would think of as a Neil Marshall movie. No, well, it's not at all. It was, it was just this random notion that suddenly spread. And the more I thought about it was like applying these kind of wartime metaphors, or, you know, onto a, this night out at the pub suddenly fell into place and then i thought well because it's essentially silent it'll travel well it's not reliant on, on language and these sort of international languages of what i'm talking about will come across anyway anyway we got the money to do it and we shot it over a weekend and uh um and it, it became kind of a trial run for dog soldiers because uh, they used you know the same dp and there were a couple of cast members and things like that so um, yeah, it kind of became a, a, a sort of practice run for that and proved at the time we were trying to get the finance for Dog Soldiers together. And it just kind of proved to them that I was capable of actually just making a movie that told a story and was dynamic and looked good. And, and you know, it helped in that respect massively. Well, everybody seems to have a different story on how they got their first feature. And so this came out of that particular short. Uh... Well, I'd already started work um, on Dog Soldiers at that point. I'd, I'd written several drafts of the script, and, and we were in the process of constantly. I mean, because myself and, and Keith Bell, the producer that I was working with on it, uh, we'd uh, been at film school together, although in different years. And then when we when we made this film, Killing Time, in '95, uh, he was the production manager on it, and and so we were both right there in the midst of all the chaos. And at some point, I think we just sat down and said, "Look, we could do this ourselves." with our own project and make sure people get paid <laughs> and, you know, do it well. And so Dog Soldiers was born from that moment. And, uh, and that was in 95. And I started writing it pretty much immediately once I had the whole soldiers versus werewolves idea in my head. Um, you know, and that, and, and that obviously came from like a love of war movies and an obsession with the howling and American werewolf in London. Right. Um, so, Kind of all the same time, uh, Howling, American Werewolf in London, and uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, yeah, no, those were are all yeah. right in the, your the, the early eighties wonder years. Yeah. yeah, absolutely ingrained in my psyche. Uh, I can't, you know, I'm obsessed with eighties like, cinema generally. Um, so yeah. Well, with Dog Soldiers, that seemed to be a turning point in your life and in your career because suddenly it's going to all these festivals around the world mm-hmm. and getting a lot of attention. Tell me what how that felt and what the change was and, and which screening maybe was the one that went, oh, I may have something that's going to reach beyond my hometown. Um, yeah, because I mean, that was such a long process of getting there. It was six years from first draft script to shooting it um, and various stops and starts along the way, a few false starts of Nelly shooting it here, Nelly shooting it. Oh, really? Yeah, oh. we came very close to shooting it at the Isle of Man. We came... We, we were looking at Manitoba at one point. Oh, my God. And then uh, then finally Luxembourg fell into place and we went and did it there and then we got the financing uh, in the US and, and um, so all that fell into place. And then, you know, we shot it, we made it. Um, I can't remember, like, you know, we screened it at Sitges, which was a, which was mm. a very, very important screening. Um, and Brussels as well was, yes. was a, a 
was such a fun screening. Um, the Brussels screenings are interesting because if you show a full moon <laughs> in yeah. your movie, everyone in the audience howls. If you show a kiss, everybody starts well, uh, making yeah, smooching I th- sounds. I think that was probably the one, to be honest, because there was a lot of howling going on throughout that screening. <laughs> it was very vocal. I've never experienced anything quite like it before. Um, and yeah, so that, so that was that was incredible. And then it went on to box office success as well, not so much in the U.S., but in most of the world. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, that, that, I guess that took me by surprise. We had, we had, because of the various screenings, and I can't remember which one it was specifically, but that, um, Pathé picked it up for distribution in the UK. And then suddenly it kind of came alive from that because they gave it like a really good release and got really behind it. And then, uh, you know, everybody else kind of picked it up from there. The, uh, the only place it didn't get a significant theatrical release was in the States, uh, for whatever reason. Um, and so, yeah, you know, we, we toured a bunch of bunch of places, and you could feel it was out there, and it got great reviews. Very, very happy about that, and it got a great sort of cult following. I think one of the things that made me most proud about it was I heard that it was the movie most watched by the soldiers out in um, Iraq. Wow! At that time in Afghanistan, like all the British soldiers were watching Dog Soldiers. Um, and I always wanted to go out there and like do a screening for them, but I never managed to make that happen. But, <laughs> but just that was they enough. They saw it on their own. That's good. Yeah, just that was enough. Well, the next one was an even bigger game changer for you. I mean, The Descent to this day is still one of the scariest, most suspenseful movies I've ever seen. But it's also, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but the politics of it. Did you go into it making, thinking, I'm going to have an all-female cast and make a point of it from that or it's just what felt best intuitively for the storytelling. Um, that was like I'm trying to remember how it all came about with the with the the, the notion of doing it all female. The, the origins of, the, of that whole film came about from a review of Dog Soldiers, and I can't remember who wrote it, but somebody wrote like, "This is all great, but when's a British filmmaker going to make a really scary horror film again?" Um, and I kind of felt that the gauntlet was thrown down there. And I was like, okay, so... <laughs> and it was your job to, to pick like, it okay, up. I was like, okay, I've got the opportunity here, so let's let's come up with something genuinely scary. Because, you know, Dog Soldiers may be scary, but it's also very funny, f- yeah. for me anyway. Um, it's got a, you know, tongue film. And it's cheek. action, too. Yeah. And it's action, yeah. yeah. So to make a pure horror, um, well, that was the challenge. And I, I went down and met some producers in London. I was still living up in Newcastle at the time. I went down to, you know, like, it's a three-hour train ride down to London. I met some producers, and I pitched, like, a feature version of my student film, my zombie film. Mm-hmm. And they basically said, it's great, but it's going to be too expensive for us. We can't afford that. If you've got any other ideas, let us know. So I went back, got on the train, and the three hours journey back to Newcastle, I came up with The Descent, came up with the whole idea. And at some point within that conversation, uh, the idea of the all-female cast came up as well. And it was like, that's that, – because I literally you – know, obviously, I've just done an all-male kind of you know, right. movie. Filled with testosterone. Yeah, I've done that. I've done the kind of blokey movie. And so <laughs> um, I don't know. Obviously, there was one woman in that, but it was still kind of blokey on the whole. And, <laughs> um, and so to do the, the flip side, let's do why not? And I was, you know, I was interested in that subculture of – climbers and cavers and things like that and you, the more you do research about it it's like there's just as many women out there doing that, that insane stuff as there are men so why not have a, a bunch of women who do this 
and then you know and from then on it was like okay it wasn't like an agenda it just felt right mm -hmm. and i wanted to do it justice and not be exploitative in the way i did it as well it was like if i'm going to do it all female okay they're not going to be running around in bikinis <laughs> right, yes. um let's not make a joke out of this let's play it straight and then you know that became a little bit of a battle with some of the producers or the distributors or whatever who were like you know so where's the scene you know literally like i got a question of you know we need to have a scene of them going swimming in the cave and taking all their clothes off and i'm like mm. i'm not if, if that's the movie you want to make i'm not going to make it for you well it's it's really great because you wrote the script you wrote these characters mm -hmm. they feel very genuine you know the 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 gender issues aside i mean it's these are really rich characters in an incredibly claustrophobic suspenseful movie um where did you do did you build most of those cave sets or did, was it a mix of location and and building because they're incredibly convincing sets yeah well it's um just to go back to the first part of that that question is like you know a lot of people forget that i wrote the descent as well yeah and although i certainly did confer with a lot of uh, female friends and my sister and stuff like that just to sort of get a sense of like you know is this dialogue feel authentic um yeah it's it's often kind of forgotten that i wrote it as well so um in terms of making it uh you know the big secret is that there isn't a single real cave in the whole movie really um there's miniatures there's matte paintings uh, but the most of the most part is sets that we built uh in a little studio part of the pinewood uh, studio oh really you shot it at we pinewood, shot at pinewood yeah <laughs> this is, you know, for my second feature like to shoot at pinewood was <laughs> unbelievable james bond superman star wars oh yeah <laughs> uh amazing heritage there um but it was in January. There's no heating. It was absolutely freezing. Oh my god! Uh, and of course, all our sets are like hosed down with water constantly. And and the tr the trick with the sets was, and my amazing production designer Simon Bowles kind of really tapped into this. When I'd been discussing how we we're going to shoot this with my DP for like a year before we ever got around to shooting it, and the trick was. I didn't want any gratuitous like shafts of light coming down from nowhere in particular. Unmotivated uh, make, lighting yeah, sources. To, to yeah. make the caves look beautiful, like so mm. many cave movies beforehand. Um, so I said, look, well, yeah, the only lighting should be what they take into the cave with them. And you know, I'd been caving. I understood this concept of like, when, if there's no, if you, when you turn your, you know, your, your torch or your, your flashlight off, um, it's pitch black. And I want to, convey that on screen somehow so like that's going to be the lighting style uh so the production design kind of fit with that in that we didn't need to have huge sets we didn't need to have elaborate sets where we made a series of i think it was like eight sets in total which we reused again and again and again and we just go in and like literally turn the set around and move some rocks around and spray in different, different angles color. and lenses and different yeah. angles lenses and mm. you can guarantee that the actors never pointed their torch in the same place twice so <laughs> Uh, so all of that combined meant you could like just walk through the same environment several times and wow. nobody knew. The veracity of that. I mean, it looks real. There's, yeah. there's not a scene in there where you, where you see the seams. No. You don't see uh, pine wood showing through. No, not at all. And we, you know, we had, uh, I think there was some new kind of technology in like foam thing that, that the production designer used to make it look really great. And then the, the other thing we did was we just constantly had these, um, like uh, spritzes and water sprayers constantly just putting this water in the air or running down the rock and everything like that. And I think it just really added to the atmosphere. There was nothing comfortable about the caves. It was always uncomfortable. It's incredibly uncomfortable to watch if you're claustrophobic, as I am, and I hope you aren't. Uh, no, well, I don't know. If I was in that circumstance, I probably would be. But 
I, you know, I, when I made the film, I thought, okay, like I'm tapping into a fundamental he- fear here, and that's a good thing for a horror movie. But I expected maybe, I don't know, two or three people out of ten to be really claustrophobic. But what that film taught me is it's more like nine out of ten. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and yeah, that's the thing that gets people more than anything in the movie. And and we did that deliberately. We like we we I made it so, um, I really avoided at any point like cutting holes in the set to get a camera through it. I was like, oh no, I want the camera to somehow fit in there with the actors to be and, scrunched in. Yeah, yeah, and use the right lenses to make it feel like everything's like compact in there and it's you know, as if we were filming in a real cave. Yeah, so that that all helped with the with the atmosphere. Well, I remember works. seeing it in Vancouver with John Landis when we were up there doing Masters of Horror, <laughs> right. and a full audience of people just the tension could be cut with a fork. <laughs> you know, it was <laughs> it was pretty amazing, and uh, so this became an even bigger success than Dog Soldiers. Again, everywhere except the U.S., it was a huge theatrical release. Well, it, it did eventually get a huge theatrical release in, in the US, but only like a year after the UK and the worldwide release. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Lionsgate picked it up and did an amazing job releasing it. And, you know, it was out on, I don't know, 3,000 screens or something. It was a big release. Right. Uh, but it was, it was just strange because it was like a full year after the UK release and mm. a full year after it had done all the festivals. And So you'd already had that. this big success in the rest of the world. Kind of, yeah. The, the, later, the one yeah. place, actually, the, the, the flip side of it is the one place that it didn't, do very well was in the uk really uh it did good but it didn't go where because it opened the day after the july 7th bombings oh of course uh so yeah so that was it was a very strange time um and actually you know it, it went on to bigger success elsewhere but in the uk that certainly you know that would put a damper on it yeah yeah, yeah it yeah. was not a great weekend mm. so now this movie being an even bigger success critically as well as financially I'm sure opened a lot of doors. What were some of the things that were thrown at you that were offered to you at that time, good, bad, or indifferent? Um, <clears throat> to be honest, I can't remember a lot of the specifics. Um, Nothing that piqued your uh, imagination. No, not really. Certainly not that. Yeah. Well, did you already have um, your next one in mind? I'd, uh, yeah, I'd been working on Doomsday for quite some time as a, as a as a pitch. So um, you'd hope that that would be your next movie. I don't know if I'd hope it'd be the next one, but I'd hoped it would get there somewhere. It was just the fact that you know I did pitch it and and they kind of jumped on it, it was great. Um, I, you know, I, I'm still amazed to this day that anybody would finance that movie. <laughs> <laughs> but they did, and but they made did, it, and, and we crazy. made it, and uh, and I'm very proud of it. I know it's crazy, but I'm proud of it. Why would that be crazy? Um, well, it's a, it's a it is a crazy movie it's for sure. Exactly, that's the appeal of it. Yeah, um, you know, it's very much a love letter to you know the early eighties and and that period of time from you know post apocalyptic movies to you know everything Mad Max and Escape from New York and Excalibur and you know the Warriors like you name it it's all thrown into into that mix and you know from my point of view it's an absolute love letter to that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, There's no question about it. Yeah. So, you know, it was crazy, but fun, and had a great time making it. What were the ones that got away? Were there things other than Troll Hunter that was something that you haven't been able to do yet, that you were close, that it was some passion project, and then it just that last two weeks before it got canceled, things like that? Um, I don't know. I've, I've, I've chased after various projects, from Predators to Tomb Raider to Conan and stuff like that, which are all, you know, very, very passionate about doing how far along did you get into any of those 
uh, with those ones, it's like just coming down to you know final choices of you know meeting directors and things like that, but getting down to like the final two on quite a lot of things. Did um, you do any presentations or were they yeah. just verbal pitch? Yeah, you put yeah. together like. Yeah, I think one of the big things. ones was um, at a, there was a time when I really chased after Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, and wow. did, a, did a big presentation on that, and was kind of thought that that might be quite a fun thing to do if you know to do it right. Um, and then you know again you get down to the final two or three directors, and you know they go with somebody else, and so that so that's happened quite a lot over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't think of anything where I've like a, you know got got into production and it's fallen through. Right. Well, you have a really interesting and enviable career in many ways. You started with features, you went into television and have continued in television and yet doing features as well as as high-end television. You know, the experience, your television experience at first was kind of the top. Uh, it was Game of Thrones, you know, mm-hmm. especially Walkers on the Wall. I mean, it is one of people's favorite episodes of their favorite series ever. What was that experience like? Um, well, that, that, ultimately, that came directly from the feature experience that uh, when I made Centurion, um, a lot of the, the crew uh, went on to work on Game of Thrones. Ah. Uh, the stunt, the, the, the horse masters and the stunt people in particular. Uh, so they went to work on Game of Thrones. Um, and when, uh, I think it was after Centurion, you know, Centurion came out, Game of Thrones was just starting their first season and I saw it and was like, okay, I'd love to do something like that. So I certainly approached HBO and was like, um, no, you know, we have our, you know, school mm-hmm. of directors and, and you're not there. So it was a bit of a closed shop in a way. And then, um, I don't know, several months later when they were shooting season two, I got a, co- a phone call out of the blue from, um, one of the producers on Game of Thrones saying, would you like to come and direct an episode? Uh, and and the reason that it happened was because uh, their original director had had to drop out at the last minute. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they were left, they were a week before filming their biggest episode ever, which was the Battle of Blackwater, uh, season nine episode, uh, season two, episode nine. Right. And, um, and they were in a bit of a panic. And uh, the stunt coordinator uh, from Centurion had, had said, give Neil a call, have a look at this movie, and then give Neil a call. Uh, and they did, and they said, it was literally like, do you want to do an episode? I was like, absolutely, when does it start? You know, like a couple of weeks, a month? They're like, oh no, you need to start Monday morning. Now. <laughs> uh, and you've got a week's prep to do like the biggest episode ever. I was Unbelievable. Like, okay. Um, <laughs> but, you know, jumped in feet first, and, uh, uh, and it was an incredible experience. I mean, it's such an amazing team they have there, and great scripts, and great, you know, amazing production values um and that just enabled me to do, essentially go in and do this huge battle and then um and huge budgets for television this is not yeah. what you think of as a television production at all not at all i mean it was ultimately for a tv episode it was the same kind of budget size as my my last feature so it was very similar in that yeah. in that respect um you know an amazing cast amazing crew so yeah it was a really really fun experience and that was like my first G- my first tv job uh, it's like a pretty, real, real TV job, yeah. That's a pretty big step into it. It was, yeah. yeah. But I don't know, you know, like the way TV works now, it's like, you know, it's HBO, it's that. Is that really like TV? I don't right. know. It's like some kind of... And Netflix and, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it's it's neither TV nor cinema, but it's a combination of both. Yeah. And it's and it's, um, it's very cinematic television. And it's 
Right. And what about Watchers on the Wall? I mean, that is a favorite as well. Mm -hmm. And it's completely different structurally. Tell me about how your approach to that was. Uh, well, at that time, and um, certainly Watchers on the Wall was the most kind of technically elaborate thing I'd done as far as use of CG and things like that because we had uh, the giants and then we had the mammoth and all that kind of right. stuff going on in there and trying to figure out how to do that was very technical. But thankfully with that one, I had a full month's prep on it. So, you know, we prevised an awful lot of stuff. Going a in. month of prep for an episode of a TV. I know. <laughs> it's pretty remarkable. It's pretty amazing, but we needed it. We needed to previs and storyboard all the stuff with the mammoth and the giants. Um, but then at the same time, there was, the, you know, there was the opportunity to do more kind of off the cuff stuff, which was, you know, me walking onto the set of Castle Black and looking at the whole thing and saying, you know, what this really needs is a 360. We need to do something special here. Which is one of the most remarkable technical feats I've ever seen in a television show. Well, and the thing with that was that it wasn't really in the script at all. It was like I came up with the shot and came up with, and it was partly like, okay, I can't just do a shot for the sake of doing a shot. What does it, what does it do? How does it motivate it? And it was, and the idea of tying all the characters in together in that battle with one shot, explaining where each character was at that particular point in the story, um, suddenly it, it, it came alive then. It was like, okay, this has a real purpose to it and it works. And then the, you know, the showrunners and everybody were like, go for it, do it. And how did, I, I watched it and said, how the hell did they do this? Technically, how did you achieve that? Uh, well, it, I mean, the castle, black courtyard is just a courtyard the set is 360 around it so we just stuck the crane right in the middle um and we had all our stunt people around the outsides and all that kind of stuff and then our ad divided them up into eight groups i think it was and each one and he called out the number as the camera approached them he calls out the number they start doing that action routine Wow. So that they're not used up by the time the camera gets. So it's there. all practical. It's all, it's all practical. actually happening in yeah, real time. Yeah, 100% practical. Yeah. Uh, and then we rehearsed it like what you know for an hour or so, and got it in about seven takes of just figuring out the moves and where to go when and who should you know cue, which cues should go when. It was it ultimately proved quite straightforward. Well, the choreography is so brilliant in it. Yeah, it's, it's, I don't know. It's one of my most proud moments. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> well, you suddenly find yourself doing this premium television. You're doing Black Sails. You're doing Hannibal, my, my favorite broadcast TV yes. series. Yes. Very lucky to do that. Brian on. Um, and you're doing, you did the pilot for Constantine and Timeless. Yeah. And you did uh, Westworld. I mean, all of this high end. Can you work cheap anymore? No, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, you know, incredibly lucky to, to, do that stuff um and to do you know it's, it's the variety of genres and you know get to get to go to go to do a western to do you know pirate shows like uh, if you were doing well I, I don't know if you could do that doing features anymore so the ability to kind of jump between those genres and things like that is so fascinating and i just enjoy that for sure you were working then as a director for hire how did you find that different from something that you had generated yourself um I suppose, well, the, the the biggest difference is that you kind of have to sign off that it's not your baby. It's somebody else's baby. So you feel very, and, and also because the features that I wrote, uh, that I made a wall, I wrote them as well as well. And so it's very easy for me to just go in and sort of like rewrite a scene or change a line of dialogue or whatever, or work with the actors and, you know, not be precious about it in that sense. Uh, but because when you go on a TV show, it's not your script. It's somebody else's script. It's somebody else's show, most likely. And therefore, like you, 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 you're essentially going into to service that to go in and do the best job possible for them and achieve their, their 
your version of their vision uh, in a way. Yeah, and they hire you for your vision as well. Yeah, yeah. So you know, they certainly want your vision, and that came into play big style on Game of Thrones for sure. Um, throwing in ideas left, right, and center for the battle stuff, which a lot of which got in there, and it's great. Um, and, and and so and, uh, you know, you. You, you, you park your ego, for one thing, because <laughs> you can't have an ego when you're doing that kind of stuff. And uh, you just go in and be you know, as professional as possible and just go and do the job. So you write, you, produ- you direct, you edit, you produce. What do you like and what do you hate? <laughs> well, producing is very political, so that's a lot less fun. Um, Does writing come easy for you? Writing is pain. Yeah, is it agony? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, it used to be a lot easier, and I think it used to be easier because I didn't try and second guess. You, yeah, the more you get into the industry, I, well, I find I'm not sure it's, you know, a lot of people don't feel the same way, but I find that I'm second guessing what like an audience wants to see mm. and things like that. Whereas when I you find that out, dangerous, yeah, I think it's really dangerous because uh, I used to just write what I wanted to see. Um, you know, that's where Dog Soldiers and Descent came from. Was like. I wanted to see a movie with soldiers fighting werewolves. And I didn't <laughs> yeah. know if anybody else did, but it was like, okay, that's that's fine. So, um, yeah. So, and, and I think that you know, I don't write as much as I used to. Although I don't have the time to write as much as I used to, but uh, I would like to write a lot more uh, and try and just blank that out. You know, just kind of cut myself off from the world and just go and write some stuff because I have like plenty of ideas. And idea you'd like to just shut yourself away from what you think other people want you to write as well, or the yeah, movies that that definitely. they want you to make, because it seems to me the purest work comes from, you know, if you can connect with an audience on what the story is that you want to tell, that's going to be your biggest success. Yeah, but you can you you cannot second guess what an audience is going to like. You know, the audiences are unpredictable at best, so um, you just have to write what you believe in. What about now being a producer you you've just come back from lost in space mm-hmm. which your company produced and you did the pilot a couple of episodes i think yeah i did episodes one and two one and two and so tell me about that experience it shot in vancouver right and you're just as we're talking now you're just back for the last week or so yeah uh well you know it's an amazing show it's gonna it's a huge show for netflix um there's i don't know how much is like you know publicly known about it at this stage i mean it's been announced for sure um, you know, I, I went up there and served many roles on it of being the director of, uh, the, you know, I, I guess you call it the pilot. It's episode one and episode two. Uh, I, I did some second unit duties. I did some EP duties. I did some, you know, technically the, the producing director, but it's a bit of a vague role. Um, you know, when you have a huge experienced TV directors like David Nutter coming in to do mm. an episode, you're kind of like, well, there's nothing really I can tell him. <laughs> so, <laughs> or need to. Yeah. Or need to. So, like, you know, he's just going to go and do what he does best. Um, so, yeah, you know, it, it, it was it was an all-encompassing kind of period of time spent in Vancouver. Got to shoot some amazing sets and amazing locations. And, yeah, it's been, it's been fun. It's going to, you know, I'm just really proud of the end result. I think it's going to be, a, it's going to be fun. And when will that be unleashed? I don't know for sure, for certain. Mm. I mean, we're not going to be finished in post on it until next year, early next year sometime. There's a lot of visual effects to be done. So this was this your first experience as an overriding executive producer on an entire series? Yeah. yeah. And what, how did you find it? Uh, it's okay, but I'd, I'd rather just be directing. <laughs> so most of your feature work, all of your feature work has been independent. And... 
the television work you've been doing has been at the very apex of what's being done by yeah. the Netflixes and HBOs of the world. Tell me the difference between the experience. Um, well, well, I suppose uh, Doomsday was a little bit. Uh, I mean, it was Rogue Pictures, but that you know, it was connected to Universal in a way. But I, didn't, I never. But felt, they're indie arm. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, but I never really felt a studio kind of hand on it at all. Um, yeah, the, the difference with, with television, yeah, you're dealing with, with the big networks or, or HBO or whatever, but how much I physically, as a director going in, mm-hmm. uh, you tend to have very little contact with that at all. Um, so you had access to bigger tools, better tools? Yeah. Then? Oh, yeah. Descent Absolutely. and Doug Soldiers. <laughs> Definitely. But I think, uh, you know, I think the best thing for me was like coming from doing any kind of lower budget independent movies helps you in the TV world just because of the speed you need to work at. You know, that's that's kind of way more similar. If I'd come from bigger budget movies into TV, I think I might struggle more. But, mm-hmm. you know, having done fast, quick movies, um, then then I think that, that, that works. It's good practice for television, for sure. Yeah, well, in television, if you're a director for hire, I don't think most people in the audience realize that when you agree to do an episode, you're agreeing to a time slot, yes. not to a script. So yes. you're just whatever the script comes up with. And sometimes I, I had an experience where I got the script the night before we started shooting. So it's not like a film by Neil Marshall. It is the vision of executive producers and writers and showrunners yes. interpreted through the eyes of Neil Marshall. So Yeah, and you, you always try and put, a, put your stamp on it somehow as a visual director. Um, but, you know, that, that either comes off or it doesn't. Right. Um, but I, th- I think inherently it does, just the way you block scenes, the way you uh, work with your actors, the way you frame shots, things like that. I think it's just in, in somehow comes out there. Now, you've done several pilots, yes. and those are more like features than they are like episodes of TV shows, it seems to me. Uh, they are definitely a bit more interesting because the whole point about doing the pilot is that you want to put a visual style on the show that will remain. So you do get a lot more input on a pilot as far as mm-hmm. the, the, the visual style is concerned. Um, so that, that it is like doing a mini feature in a way, yeah. You're about to go to Bulgaria. Yes. To reboot a, a favorite hero, Hellboy. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. Do you envision this as, as having the same look? Is it going to be computer-generated Hellboy? Is it going to be practical effects as Guillermo did in his? Uh, it's definitely going to be as practical as we can possibly make it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it is inherently, we're, you know, we are rebooting, and so we want to give it a, a stamp of its own. Um, you know, we're working very closely with Mike Minola to, you know, uh, to, to keep it close to the origins of the characters, but also the world and, and, and that kind of thing. Does he have a hand in the script? Uh, he, did, he did write one of the drafts of the script, yes. Um, so he is you know, involved, and in, in not, I don't know if he's involved in an official capacity, but he's certainly like been a champion of the project so far, uh, and a champion of me on board the project, which is amazing. And so, yeah, we, you know, I, I love to do stuff in camera whenever I possibly can. And use CG as the, you know, the amazing tool that it is to enhance or expand upon the world. Uh, but try, you know, not to use it to replace reality when when you can do it in real. You've been out of the realm of feature films for several years now. How does it feel to be going back into something of that scope? Uh, it's daunting, but at the same time, I've, I have been 
aching to do a feature for some time. And it's not like, you know, it's, it's easy for the perception to be, well, he's doing TV now and he probably doesn't want to do features anymore. That's not the case. I have been itching to do a feature since my last one. Uh, that's what I got into this business for in the first place. That's my love of features. So that's what I've always wanted to do. And just for one reason or another, like projects not coming together or, um, uh, you know, pitching for things and not, not getting the job, whatever. Uh, hasn't happened until now, and, and this has been on the boil for some time. And uh, yeah, I'm super excited just to go there and just you know knock it out of the park. Obviously, I'm very aware of the you know, the, the, the pressure involved. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of expectations, a lot to live up to from either the the comics fans, from Enola fans, from Guillermo fans. Um, I don't want to disappoint, so just got to go out there and do my best. Yeah, which is an exciting thing and a, a great. It's a challenge. To be. It's definitely yeah. a challenge, and I do like a challenge. So, well, you've lived up to them so far <laughs> and exceeded all expectations. Well, thank you. So, we uh, have been getting uh, a bunch of questions from our listeners at uh, on Twitter at postmortemmg. One of the questions we got was about the Hellboy reboot. I mean, how is it different? I mean, is it are you allowed to be more extreme than might be uh, the PG thirteen land of superhero movies? Uh, yeah, and I'm sure that you know, we, we've been granted permission to do it R-rated, um, which for me is just like taking the cuffs off. It's like, okay, so now we can just make the movie we want to make. It's not like I'm going to force it to be R-rated, but if it happens to come out that way just because of my own sensibilities, then fine. Great. Um, and, and nobody's going to stop us. So that's, that's the main thing. It's like, And I'm sure, obviously, the success of things like Deadpool and Logan have not hurt that cause. But it also, when you go back to the original materials, it is kind of bloody. So, um, so I'm going to embrace that. <laughs> Great. Um, Richard asks, you played with werewolves and dog soldiers. Is there another classic monster or creature you would be interested in exploring in the future? Well, ever since it was announced uh, that you know, Universal were um, kind of rebooting their monster series, I've, I've been itching to do Creature from the Black Lagoon. Uh-huh. Um, to do a new kind of take on that would be, uh, would be amazing. People have tried for years. Landis was trying to do it yeah. for a long time. I think Carpenter yeah. was attached to it for a while. I think so. But, I, I, but I'd also I'd, I'd kill to do an alien movie. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'd love that. Um, Amitab asks, is it true you had three days to prep the Blackwater episode of Game of Thrones? Uh, no, it was five days. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks for all of the information and for being with us, Neil. And it's really a pleasure to have you and can't see what happens in the world of Hellboy and Lost in Space. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.